Hey, what's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Fly Fidelity. I'm your host, Luke Bailey. Incredible content for incredible times, and make sure you follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud if you aren't already. Also, make sure you check us out at flyfidelity.co.uk. And now for the main event. On this episode, we are joined by Elisa Allen, the director of PETA UK. We hope you enjoy the conversation. You guys do crazy shit. Yeah, I can get down with you guys. You guys, you guys are fun. I love ballsy groups, you know, I love groups that aren't afraid. And PETA, <laughs> there's no one, there's no one like PETA. PETA says, wake up, folks, and take a look. They're a great inspiration to so many people and so many activists, and that's what we need right now. And it's, a, and it's of the times right now. It's cool to be vegan. It's cool to wear um, cruelty-free fashion. And I think it's a lot to do with PETA, you know, starting all that. PETA is the voice for everything that's speechless, you know, any any large animal, any small animals. They have an organization recognizing the fact that no animal needs to die in order for us to live. PETA is so organized. There's something about their efforts that are fun and brave. It seems like something that's really misunderstood. You know, that people, uh, they get vilified for trying to do the right thing. I was like, these guys, I gotta be a part of these guys. This rebel organization, this, this is me. This is who I'm gonna be when I grow up. Very thoughtful and very compassionate and very determined to make change. PETA kind of yells the loudest in the animal organization and people pay attention. PETA, PETA, PETA! That's the solution because PETA is the most effective animal rights organization in the entire world. America is more compassionate place today because of PETA. PETA to, to me is a lot more than just don't wear fur. Yeah, I always think of PETA as like people that, that save animals. It doesn't really get any better than that. It's cool. PETA's like, they're like, you know, they're punk rock. They're cool. I think you're, you're saving the world. So who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Now, for the past 40 years this year, Peter has strived to revolutionize the way people think about animals and animal welfare. How do you think the landscape for animals has changed since Peter was started 40 years ago? Oof, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the remarkable things about PETA is that PETA has really forced society to examine our current relationship with animals. And I think today, most people do not look at fur or circuses, animal testing, meat in the same way that they did 40 years ago when PETA first started. Um, and of course, PETA has brought us a long way, but the reality is that we still have a lot of work left to do. Um, but I do think it's good to reflect on these things. You know, before PETA, animal testing for cosmetics was the norm. Um, now there are over 5,000 companies on our beauties without bunnies list. Uh, that means that they don't conduct animal tests anywhere in the world. Uh, before PETA, fur was a, a fashion statement. It was a status symbol. Uh, you know, 40 years ago, uh, very few people understood how horrifically cruel the fur trade is. Um, fast forward to now, and if you walk down the British high street, you'd be really hard pressed to find fur anywhere. I mean, we've convinced 
Burberry, Vivian Westwood, Zara, Topshop, H&M, everyone to go for free. And beyond that, I think there's a real understanding that foxes and mink and rabbits, that they're not fabric. They're animals and their lives belong to them. The fur on their back belongs to them, not to us. Um, wild animal circuses, I think that's a really great one to bring up. I remember as a child, I used to go to the circus. Um, I saw lions jump through hoops of fire. I saw elephants balancing on balls. And um, I, I suppose back then, I didn't know any better. My parents didn't know any better. Um, today we do. And we understand that it it's not right to deny animals their freedom um, for the sake of human entertainment. And that's part of the reason why now we're seeing countries around the world taking action. Um, Ireland, Scotland, England, uh, most recently Wales have all passed legislation banning these uh, cruel and archaic acts. Um, and then, of course, veganism. We joke at PETA that... Uh, not that long ago, when you said I'm vegan, people thought you were someone from Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, people really didn't understand what that word meant. Well, obviously, we've seen a massive shift there. Uh, just this week, Nando's launched a vegan chicken burger. Uh, PETA played a part in that. Um, we worked with Greg's to launch the famous vegan sausage roll. Um, you can go to Subway and get a vegan meatball sub. I mean, vegan food is, is quite literally at every corner. Um, it's mainstream. It's accessible. And I think that's so important. Um, there's no longer reason to eat animal, animal flesh, um, especially when we have these amazing vegan options that are so readily available. So where does your journey as an animal rights activist begin? When did your personal journey and fight to stop animal cruelty start? Oh, you know, I, I think back on that every now and again, and I kind of think, how did I get here? Um, you know, of course, it's hard to pick one specific moment, um, but I will tell you one I think kind of pivotal moment in, in my life when I was younger, um, I, I didn't grow up vegan. Uh, I grew up as many people did, um, eating animals, wearing animals, as I mentioned, going to the circus and yeah. all a host of things that I wouldn't do today. Um, when I was 12, someone in my class told me what hot dogs were. And but maybe other kids knew at the age of 12, I didn't. Um, they, this girl in my class, she had told me that hot dogs contained eyeballs and lips and um, I guess without being too crude and, and buttholes. Um, <laughs> and I, I was disgusted and I was horrified. And I went home and I was really angry with my parents. How dare they? They never told me this. I'd eaten hot dogs my whole life and no one told me what they were made out of. Um, my dad is very practical and he, he said to me, well, what do you think chicken nuggets are? What do you think drumsticks are? I used to eat those all the time. Um, 
and why why is it any less gross to eat a chicken wing than chicken lips um, or pig lips? Uh, and, and I thought about it, and there wasn't an answer. And from that was when I first decided to go vegetarian. Um, you know, and I, I suppose from there things kind of fell into place. Um, as a teenager, I visited the PETA website, um, and I. For me, it became uh, less about being disgusted about meat. I, of course, I still am, but more of a, I suppose, an ethical, uh, a moral uh, imperative. Um, and here I am now. I've just celebrated 10 years at PETA. Um, I actually have a twin sister, Emily, who also works for PETA in really? the United States. Um, so, yeah, we always joke that it's it's in our genes. <laughs> um, yeah, so as I say, I mean, who if I hadn't had that conversation with my classmate when I was 12 about hot dogs, maybe there would have been another moment. But um, but for me, looking back at it, that really started a journey for me. Yeah, we're talking about, like you say, a process that's as physically draining as it is emotionally. What kind of process was it for yourself to prepare for this kind of work you're doing, like you say, 10 years now deep with Peter? Oh, you know, people often ask, uh, or uh, they say, it must be so hard to work at PETA and to look at all of the awful images of animal cruelty in the undercover videos. Um, and, and yes, it, it is. Uh, but I think what I love about PETA is that we also achieve so much. Mm. And, and I feel like I can, um, I watch the footage, but it motivates me to do more and to do better and to get it out there and, um, and to make other people understand. And we've had so many amazing victories over the years at PETA, and it really feels like right now we're at a moment in time where we're just picking up steam and picking up momentum. Um, and, you know, I think uh, I... I was thinking back today about a lot of the organizational victories that we have, which of course are amazing. Um, I, I think oftentimes for me though, the the real highs, they come from the individual stories. Um, and I mention this because as an animal activist, it can be hard sometimes to kind of gauge your effectiveness uh, because it's not always immediate. You know, um, often our goal is to start conversations, it's to plant those seeds, to spark dialogue in the hope that over time it inspires change. Um, but we don't see immediate, we don't often see immediate results. And so some of my best days at PETA are when I hear from people who tell us that we've made a difference in their lives. Um, and I have one great story. A few weeks back, we received an email from a man. He had gone to Oxford Circus in London to buy a Canada Goose jacket. Um, and I don't know if you're if you've heard of Canada Goose or if you're aware of the brand. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Um, well, for anyone who doesn't know, they um, we have had a long-standing campaign against Canada Goose um, because they line their jackets with coyote fur. 
Um, so this man went into the Canada Goose store, uh, and while he was walking in, he saw a protester. So he went up to them, he took a PETA leaflet, and as he was walking around the store, he read the leaflet. Um, he really read it. Uh, and he had no idea that the fur on those coats, that it came from coyotes who are trapped in the wild. Um, what that means is that coyotes, they're in their homes, they're just minding their own business uh, until suddenly they step on a trap and their limbs are are caught. Uh, often their bones are crushed and then they languish in those traps. Sometimes they die from dehydration, from starvation, from blood loss. Um, others wait until a hunter comes along and shoots them and then they're skinned and their fur ends up on these uh, expensive coats that are sold in London and, and elsewhere. Um, well, anyways, he read this leaflet and he walked out of the store. He, he didn't buy the jacket. And he emailed us a few weeks later to thank us and to let us know that we had made a difference. Um, and I, I thought that was remarkable. And I, I love those stories because, as I say, sometimes we're, we're outside Canada Goose and elsewhere and you're standing out there in the cold and in the rain and you're handing out leaflets and you just kind of have to live on hope <laughs> that someone is reading, that is taking that leaflet and is reading it and that it does make a difference. Um, and, and we know that it does. And it's great to have that validation, too. It is. Now, speaking of validation and making a difference, you mentioned, of course, your anniversary just earlier at the top of the interview. How do you think your personal victories have encouraged people to engage in a discourse of animal rights, understanding science, law and producing new solutions? Well, I suppose my personal victories are um, are also PETA's. You know, it's hard yeah. to distinguish one from another. Um, I, I have... I will say that we have seen massive change uh, in the 10 years I've been at PETA and, and beyond. I think there's now there's a real understanding about who animals are, um, that they're not things, they're not handbags or shoes, they're not test tubes, they're not hamburgers. They're individuals. They feel pain and fear. They can feel love and joy if given a chance. Um, and they deserve better than to be e exploited um, for human gain. And so I think there's a real understanding now about who animals are. And the more that we come to that realization, the harder it is to justify exploiting them and killing them for frivolous items especially in 2020 right. when we have alternatives and I think that's really important to to get across to people that for every cruel thing there's a cruelty free version um, we live in a world of abundant choices you know and we, we go to the supermarket we have aisle after aisle after aisle um, and and also vegan meats. Um, so, you know, I, I suppose when I first went vegan, maybe it was a little bit harder. You had to be a bit more creative in the kitchen. Um, now it's really just a matter of replacing a beef burger with a Beyond Meat burger, which tastes 
pretty similar. Most people can't taste the difference, um, but a lot better for your health and certainly a lot better for animals. So how do you measure the impact of your work, or should I say Peter's work in Legacy, and reevaluate new ways to make a difference today? Uh, how, how do we measure it? You know, um, I suppose that, that's a tough question. We, we can measure it oftentimes in our reach. You know, we can look right. at um, the how many people have viewed our undercover footage. And I think um, since we're talking about journeys, I, I kind of, I often reflect back on this. When, um, when I first started at PETA, we had, uh, we had these graphic undercover investigations and into all sorts of places and laboratories and fur farms and um, and in factory farms and slaughterhouses. And the footage was just so awful. And we would go to TV stations and we would show them the footage because, of course, we wanted to get it out there and have the public see it. And we were often told it's just it's too grim. It's too violent. It's too graphic. We cannot air this. And so we were stuck and we used to uh, we used to stand in the middle of cities. We had they were called body screen TVs. It was essentially a big television that you strap onto yourself. Um, and we would stand on the street and try to engage with people that way to have them come over and watch the footage. And we would explain to them what what was going on. And that was great. It was a great piece of outreach. And in a day we could reach a few hundred people. Well, now we have social media. We can post a video on Facebook and within 24 hours, over a million people have seen that video. And that's been such a game changer for us um, because of course, nothing inspires someone to take action against animal cruelty more than than actually watching it. Um, so I, I think the reach in terms of those videos, we know that they make a difference. Once people see what happens to animals in factory farms and slaughterhouses, it, it quite literally turns their stomach. Um, they don't, you know, most people are decent and kind and they want to make they want to make right choices and compassionate choices. And I think once people see what happens, uh, they're much more inclined to make those choices. And so the reach on online on our website is really important. We also have these uh, vegan starter kits, free vegan starter kits, which anyone can order from the PETA website. Um, it's a how-to guide for going vegan. So there's recipes and shopping tips, dietary information, and really everything you need to get started. Um, and we, we often measure our success for vegan campaigns based on how many people are ordering those kits. Um, and that can be really exciting to see. We'll, we'll launch a, recently we launched a new campaign with Walking Phoenix, um, who's of course, also a very popular, famous vegan. Mm. Um, 
On the back of those celebrity campaigns, uh, we see a real spike in people who visit our website and who order those vegan starter kits. So we know that they made an impact, that they made a difference. Um, we can also, I mean, I mentioned this at the at the start of this conversation, we can also go to the shops um, and, you know, I was recently, yesterday I was in Sainsbury's, there's an a entire aisle dedicated to vegan meats it's it's remarkable Amazing. i mean like any any kind of um meat from ribs to slice to sandwich slices and chicken and everything in between um an aisle just with vegan options um that didn't used to exist i think that's a that's a real mark of progress um you can go down the high street as i mentioned too you don't see fur anymore you don't see angora anymore um and in fact you see companies now who are promoting their vegan options. And I think that's so important. Um, we live in a consumer society. And so it's important that consumers make those choices. But of course, that retailers are offering those choices. Um, so the, the proof is out there. I think everywhere you look, um, there's a vegan boom, there's momentum, there's an understanding of who animals are, and uh, there's an understanding that our treatment of animals needs to change. I think for uh, for a very, very long time, um, our treatment of animals was one of dominance, and slowly we're now seeing it shift to a more respectful relationship um so again there we've we've accomplished so much there's a ton to celebrate but there's still work to be done too in in many parts of the world covid is having a more positive effect on wildlife i mean we've seen and we're seeing animals that are actually coming into cities and towns right now do you do you have any advice about caring for animals during this crazy and complicated timeline Oh, yeah, you're right. There have been some unexpected, perhaps, surprises, some good news for animals that have come out of this pandemic. Uh, you mentioned wildlife who is going back to um, to their homes. Um, we've seen the bullfighting industry, for example, with lockdown bullfights across Spain and elsewhere have been canceled. That means that um, hundreds and hundreds of bulls were spared the agony of being stabbed to death in the bull ring. Um, I think we're also seeing a bit more empathy towards animals in captivity. And I, I think that's important. Um, you know, when you think about it, for, for us, lockdown is temporary. Uh, for myself anyways, I, I have my comforts, you know, I, I have a warm home, I have my family, I have the internet, I have Netflix. Do you um, have pets? <laughs> I have cats, yes. Nice. Uh, they're uh, both neutered, both rescued cats. Nice. Um, but I think for animals in captivity, lockdown is forever. And that's one thing that we've seen people coming to PETA, they're emailing, they're, they're responding on social media, and there is a little bit more empathy for them. Um, we're currently working to get Lolita, she's an orca who's been held captive 
for 50 years at a marine park in Florida at Sea Aquarium. We're trying to get her out of this tiny cement tank where she has spent five decades of her life. Um, and we have to remember that orcas, they're not just extremely large animals, but they're also extremely intelligent and self-aware animals. Uh, they have their own language, their own culture. Uh, in their ocean homes, these animals would swim 100 miles a day. Um, and, and yet Lolita and other orcas are confined to these teeny chlorinated prison cells where they can turn around in small circles. And that's it. That's their life. Um, and and that, it, it's so shameful and so despicable. Um, and, and I think people are coming to that conclusion. Um, they, you know, we were locked in our homes for a few weeks, for a few months, and certainly that was inconvenient and uncomfortable. But again, for these animals in marine parks, they're their captivity is forever. And I think people have some, some slight understanding now about what that might feel like and wh why it's so important to work to free these animals. Um, I, I mentioned Lolita, and I think if anyone who's listening to this podcast is horrified that this giant animal is being held captive for human amusement, um, please join us in speaking out. We have a petition on our website. Share that with your friends, with your family. And then importantly, once lockdown is over and we can start traveling again, um, vote with your wallets. You know, never, ever, ever go anywhere where wild animals are being held captive. That's the only way ultimately that we're going to shut down these facilities is if people stop going. One of the most encouraging things happening in this pandemic was the resurgence of gardening. It has been, of course, a lot of gardening happening, which is very much popular right now, it goes without saying. Can you talk about the link between animal rights activism and environmental activism and the necessity of them both needing to coexist together now more than ever? Mm, that, that's a great question. And uh, at PETA, we have always, for decades, said that you cannot be a meat-eating environmentalist. And now, finally, environmentalists are getting on board with that. Um, Al Gore and George Monbiot, Jack Harris, um, Greta Thunberg, all prominent eco-warriors, all vegetarian, vegan. Uh, that totally makes sense. And that's how it should be because animal agriculture, it's, it's such a nightmare for the environment. I mean, we are actually plowing through the Amazon rainforest to grow crops so that we can feed animals on factory farms. Um, that means not only large scale deforestation, but death and extinction for all of these species who who live in the Amazon and who are losing their habitat. Um, it, it's just one out of a million reasons why you should eat a bean burger rather than a beef burger. Um, 
turning animals into food on this large scale, it also requires just a ridiculous amount of water, which is a scarce resource. Um, I mean, just think about the amount of water that the animals on farms need to drink, the amount of water that you need to clean the filthy farms to clean the slaughterhouses, and then all of the water that you need to grow the crops so that animals have food to eat. Um, it, it, it's just not a sustainable way of eating. Um, and then speaking of water too, there's all of the waste and the excrement that factory farms create, um, which run off into our waterways. I, I know that you're in Wales, um, and I was just reading about the River Wye, which is yeah. near you. Um, apparently parts of it look like split pea soup, um, which is not normal. Um, and, and that's no. because of all the excrement from factory farms that's running into the rivers, that's polluting the rivers, and it's creating dead zones where fish and other animals can't even survive anymore. Um, so it, it, these causes are really intertwined. And actually, since we're talking about environmentalism, I also want to further the conversation on a little bit. Um, we've always said that you can't be a meat-eating meat environmentalist. Um, well, you can't really be a leather-wearing environmentalist either. Um, because studies have shown that leather is the worst, by far the worst fabric for, um, in terms of environmental damage for, for all the reasons I just mentioned, um, but also because it takes an enormous amount of chemicals, um, formaldehyde, coal tar, to treat the cowhide so that it doesn't rot in our closet. Um, and of course, all those chemicals are dumped back into the waterways. Um, so yeah, they, these causes are intertwined. And I, I think environmentalists are, are understanding that um, Extinction Rebellion um, is a great movement. Um, and I think is has really inspired people to make changes. Um, yes, we need to encourage uh, companies and governments to act, but we can also be part of that change in our day-to-day -day choices and what we eat and what we wear. You mentioned a government and a government acting. Has there been any kind of dialogue with Boris Johnson or anybody from the UK government within the past seven to eight months amid this pandemic about steps looking forward to progress animal welfare? Um, that's a great question. Um, we actually, we are currently working on a campaign, it's called the Fur Free Britain campaign. Um, what we are trying to do is, uh, fur farming has been illegal in the UK for 20 years, but of course you can still import fur, you can still buy fur in the UK, but 
that doesn't actually make much sense. If something is too cruel to produce here, it should also be too cruel to purchase here. So we want to close that loophole uh, through the Fur Free Britain campaign. Um, it, it's something that PETA, together with other animal protection groups, have been working on for a number of years, and we are really hopeful. Uh, just two weeks ago now, the government announced its intention to proceed with a sales ban on fur. Um, so th that's exciting. They, yeah. they want to take steps in that direction um, at the after the Brexit transition period. Um, and, and that holds a lot of hope, not just for animals on fur farms, of course, but it also, it would be so significant because it would, um, it would position Britain as a leader in animal welfare, but it would also uh, force other countries to step up as well. Um, where one goes, the others follow. Um, and not just fur, we, we hope that we will also be able to um, ban the sale of cruel foie gras, which is also illegal to produce here, um, but yet you can still purchase it in certain high-end stores. Um, so, it, you know, <laughs> political change, it never comes fast enough. No. Um, there's never, it, it never goes quite far enough. Um, but but it is happening, and I think we have to balance that again between what governments are doing and, and what we can do and take some personal responsibility to. Um, and we can be a part of that change again by voting with our wallets and by not purchasing those cruel products. Do you think we can genuinely change course and rewire the planet and live differently? What, what are the most important changes people should be making today to avoid sending a planet into a complete decline? What's the greatest advice you would have for somebody wanting to make an impact and change? Uh, very easy. Go vegan. <laughs> yeah. Is it um, easy? Is it easy? I mean, I, I'm vegetarian. I understand it's a process to go vegan. I'm willing to take those steps. But for somebody who hasn't taken those steps to even become a vegetarian, is it easy? Yes, is the simple answer. It really is. You know, I meet, I, I can't, I have lost track of the amount of vegans and vegetarians I've met uh, who said to me, I wish I had done this earlier. Uh, who said there was something was holding me back. I thought it would be hard. I thought it would be a challenge. I thought it would be a nuisance, this or that. Um, and then they did it. And I, I mean, this was my experience too. And, um, and then you thought, oh, well, that was actually quite simple. <laughs> um, yeah. But I appreciate it. It's a new way, not just a new way of eating, but it, it's a new way of looking at the world. Um and one of the things that we're trying to do at PETA is to combat speciesism, um, which is this idea that some species, especially the human species, is more important than other animals. Um, and so I think, you know, you ask, is it possible to rewire <laughs> all of society? Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but we have to try. Um, I, I think, you know, we're living in a climate crisis. Um, 
this pandemic has has got to be a wake up call for people that the way that we are um, treating and exploiting and killing animals um, is now killing us. And unless we change our behaviors, it's not a question of will there be another pandemic? It's really a question of when will the next pandemic hit? Um, So we have to get out of this comfort zone that we're in. And I think for a lot of people, and I, I, I understand that, um, you know, like that saying goes, habits, old habits die hard, and, and they do. <laughs> and sometimes I think we all get stuck and we've done things a certain way our whole lives. So that's the only reason why we continue to do them. Um, well, we we can't do those things anymore. Um, not if we want a planet left for our children, our children's children. Um, so unless we um, we really step up and make those changes and speak out and encourage corporations and governments to follow, there there won't be a planet left for future generations yeah. to live on. So it's really, um, it's an imperative at this point. It's no longer um, it's something, uh, it, it's something that we have to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I, the one thing I would say for anyone listening is um, who is not yet vegetarian or vegan is to try it. That's it. Just try it. Try it for a week. Try it for 30 days. Um, just give it a go. And I, I think everyone who does is um, reports back and says, as I mentioned, oh, that, that was actually pretty easy. It's really about having as much discipline as it is accountability, isn't it? You have more scientists on staff than any other animal organization, more attorneys on staff than any other animal organization. But it feels that too often Peter's work behind the scenes gets lost in the controversy and the clickbait headlines. Do you ever feel deflated for every time a critic tries to silence you for sounding the alarm about animal rights and the future of the planet? Oh, the short answer is no. You know, I um, I tell our campaigners this often that it's not controversy that's our biggest enemy, it's silence. The worst thing that could happen is if no one was talking about PETA, if no one was talking about animal rights, that would be the ultimate failure. Yeah. Um, if, you know, um, PETA, you know, you're, you're right. Um, we do bold things. Um, our, our job is to keep the plight of animals in the public's mind. And we wish that we could hold news conferences and make millions of people aware of the issues which affect animals. And, and sometimes we do that. We hold those press conferences and uh, honestly, not very many people turn up. Um, and that's the reality of the world that we live in. We live in a hustle and bustle kind of society and the stone cold facts often don't get looked at. Um, so that's why we do these bold, colorful, extraordinary, provocative, sometimes controversial things 
to draw attention to issues impacting animals and issue um, impacting the planet. And the, it's necessary. You know, we, we, yeah. we want to shake people up. We, we want to initiate discussion and debate and to get people questioning the status quo. Um, sometimes, sure, you're right. Sometimes they um, take issue with PETA or with our message, um, but they're having those conversations. And that's really what our goal is and what we want. Um, that's, that's the first step to achieving change. Um, I often refer back to Tony Benn, the, um, the labor uh, MP. He had a great quote where he described social movements and he said, it's the same thing every time. First, they ignore you. Then they say you're mad. Then they say you're dangerous. Mm. And then you can't find anyone who disagrees with you. And, and I think that's kind of how it works. Um, we, we've seen that with so many of our campaigns. I um, take our dairy campaign, for example. I, I remember um, 10, 15 years ago uh, when I told people that I don't drink milk, they, they could not understand that. Um, they thought that my health must suffer for it. Um, and also they, there's this idea that cows um i don't know that they needed to be milked or else uh they would explode <laughs> i'm not sure um but there wasn't we're fast forward now to today and um you know go to supermarket or go to a coffee shop there's oat milk almond milk hemp milk um rice milk i mean you name it um and People are drinking it and they're, they're feeling better for it. Uh, and people understand, okay, they, um, they may not be fully vegan, but they're trying these things. They're replacing their cow's milk with soya milk um, and they feel better for it. Um, they understand that actually we don't need to drink milk anymore. Um, it's, it's not natural. Um we're the only species that drinks the milk of another animal. We're the only species that drinks milk past infancy. Um, milk need not be a part of our diet. We can choose plant-based milks instead, which um, which are better for animals, certainly better for the environment, and actually better for our health too. Um, so that's how how change goes about it doesn't I mean you know we're talking about big picture ideas here and um, change doesn't often come overnight it's about planting those seeds and as I say starting those conversations um, and and then hoping that people um, that they that they start to get it we're also talking about a cauldron of misconception around what Peter do aren't we I mean do you think if you could address one singular and problematic misconception that people have of Peter, what would that misconception be, in your opinion? Hmm. I, I think one thing that people don't often appreciate is that we are envelope pushers. Um, that's our job, and we get our message out in, in a million ways. We do it nicely, we do it boldly, but we 
we do it. We understand that what reaches one person doesn't reach another, so we try everything. Um, we show people the video footage from the investigations. We hold protests. We work with celebrities. Um, we're not afraid. We, we hand out leaflets. Um, we publish commentaries in newspapers and, and so much more. And we're not afraid to look silly. We're not afraid to garner outrage. Um, we're not here to win a popularity contest. We are here to talk about the suffering of animals and to yeah. provide people with humane alternatives. Um, you know, love us, love us or hate us, but um, just <laughs> do the right thing for animals. You're doing a great thing for animals, and you've been doing that, of course, 40 years this year. You mentioned yourselves being able to take jokes, being able to have a sense of humour among what you do. How much do you think theatrics seep into the orchestration of what Peter do? Oh, I mean, we of course, uh, you know, as I've mentioned, we, we do bold and colourful, provocative things to to draw attention to ourselves. Um, we, we love street theater. Um, I, gosh, there's so many examples. Uh, we recently, this was before, um, the, before lockdown, before COVID, we were at London fashion week. Um, and we, um, we had an activist with, uh, prosthetic I'll just have to go to the website and see the photo um but she had prosthetic makeup and it looked as though her skin was being ripped off her we were making the point that leather is someone's skin it belonged to the animal who was born with it, it yeah. it's not fabric and it's not ours for the taking it's not ours to make a shoe or handbag out of um and that I mean, that really grabbed people's attention. I mean, people people looked. They couldn't help but look. Um, they took photos, which they posted on social media. The, the press was there. Um, it made headlines around the world. We were invited on radio programs to talk about why we did this. Um, and and that's, that's exactly what we're here to do. Um, so, yeah, the... The colorful actions, they're they're a big part of what we do. They're not all of what we do. And I think you mentioned that too, that we have these very serious, we have a huge amount of scientists on our team of attorneys and lawyers who do, uh, we have rescue field workers. We recently had um, one of our staff members out in Beirut after the explosion um, going through the rubble to to look for injured animals. We do so much serious work, um, which unfortunately doesn't grab the headlines, yeah. um, but our colorful campaigns do. And, and, that, and that's okay. I think that's all part of it. That's, that's the balance of it, that we do these outlandish things and they give us the platform to go on TV programs and radio stations and to talk about these issues. They drive people to our website um, to, you know, maybe it's because they're confused. Um, sometimes it's because one of their celebrities, their favorite stars, uh, posed in a PETA ad and they want to go to our website and download that poster. Um, 
it doesn't really matter to us. We just want people to go to the website to learn about these issues and to make those changes in their lives. Um, and we'll continue to do those serious, hard-hitting um, campaigns uh, alongside that we know are also making a difference for animals. So I think um, that's the thing with animal activism. It's not a one-prong approach. As I said, you kind of have to try everything and um, and do what you can um, because what reaches one person won't reach another. So you just got to um, throw it out there and hope that something sticks with someone. It's a balancing act, isn't it? Now, a lot of undercover investigators working in animal rights movements develop, generally, I feel, some kind of understanding for farm owners and regular workers. After a while, you start to see some intimacy emerging and they manage to, for whatever reasons, understand their, you know, cruel behavior. What's your personal perspective on that? Uh, you're, you're right. You know, and we... Uh, my husband grew up on a dairy farm. Um, he's vegan now as well. Um, I've spent a lot of time with his family. Um, who uh, His father's retired now. He was, was a dairy farmer his entire life. And, um, and of course, people have to make a living. And, um, and people often fall for generations as... Um, my husband's father did fall into these industries. It's what his father and his father before him did. Um, and we're not anti-farming, um, but we are anti-animal cruelty. And so in the case of my uh, my father-in-law, as a dairy farmer, we are now working with other dairy farmers to help them transition to plant-based agriculture. Um, so rather than farming cows, they are farming oats. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing that more and more, that transition, which of course is kinder for animals, it's better for the planet, but it's also more economically viable. Um, farming is, is tough, you know, especially dairy farming. Um, it, it, it's not um, for the faint-hearted, it's uh, not for lazy people. It, it's it's tough work, um, and increasingly so in this economic climate. And so we do want to work with farmers. We don't want anyone to be out of a job, but what we want to do is to help them move into other industries. Um, and, and that's what this is really all about. It's about making those changes over generations, you know, industries evolve people retrain that's that's the way of social progress and yeah. we're seeing that more and more speaking of different industries you mentioned Joaquin Phoenix just earlier at the top of the interview who you also named as the person of the year for his unrelenting work in animal activism and rights last year talk to me about Peter's assignment of Academy Nonomies at the Oscars last year and the secret spy pen you used as a way to stop animal abuse in Hollywood. Mm. Um, yeah, that's right. I'm, um, <laughs> I'm surprised that you caught that. That's great. Uh, we um, gifted um, people attending the award ceremony. So, of course, they're some of the world's most renowned actors. Um, we gifted them spy pens. They're these small cameras. They, they look like 
a regular pen, um, but they're a recording device. Uh, and we had a note to encourage them to use them when they're on film sets, if they're ever concerned about the welfare, the safety of an animal on a film or on a, uh, on a movie or a television set, um, and to press that record button to document what happened and to send us the or, or another agency the footage. Um, it's part of our ongoing work to get animals out of the entertainment industry. And, um, you know, th this conversation has been about alternatives and there's alternatives there too. We have incredible, we live in an age of innovation. Um, there's incredible technology now, CGI technology that's really making the use of animals and films and commercials totally redundant um you know look at films like planet of the apes yeah. um that was all cgi um so filmmakers now have access to this incredible technology there's really there's absolutely no excuse for using animals particularly wild animals on sets completely agree and what you did was um, very admirable because of course you did create a change with films such as A Dog's Promise and so on and so forth didn't you? Yeah yeah we've worked with um, you know the the industry has really changed it used to be that we were going against the film industry now we have producers directors coming to us to say hey we want to shoot this this commercial, this film, what have you, um, how can we avoid, uh, well, how can we avoid PETA's wrath, but also how can we avoid <laughs> animal, um, animal cruelty? Um, do you have any resources for us? Um, and so that's, that's been great. Um, that's been a really positive change. And I think, uh, the public is, is increasingly on board with this too, that used to be commonplace, um, to see animals, apes, for example, uh, dressed in human clothing, you might remember them from the PG Tips commercials. Mm -hmm. um, I think nowadays, if most of us, when we look at that, we, um, well, it looks dated, um, but we can also recognize that that's wrong, that this wild animal shouldn't be on a set, shouldn't be in human clothing, isn't an object of ridicule. Um, so, yeah, it, it's one industry where we've seen massive change over um, in just the last decade alone. You mentioned monkeys. I've got to ask you, and I've got to ask you, Elisa, I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you have any regrets about that case with the monkey in a selfie, of course? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I, you know, that, that... Um, I guess maybe just for context for anyone yeah. who doesn't know, um, this was the case of Naruto, um, who's a macaque monkey who had taken a selfie of himself. Um, and it's a really interesting one. Um, I think originally what had happened was uh, the photographer claimed that he owned the photograph because it was his camera um google uh used the image and um but said that it was in the public domain because 
um, according to the law, and I think this is kind of an important part that many people don't um, understand, I, I certainly didn't understand until um, this case came about, that actually the law says it doesn't matter who owns the camera, it's the person who pressed the button who is the owner of that image. Um, so if I give you my phone and you take a photo of yourself, it's my phone, but that photo belongs to you. Um, well, we said, wait a minute, why does the photographer get all of the money, all of the royalties for this photograph? It, it should belong to Naruto, to the to the monkey. He was the rightful owner according to the law. And the law doesn't specify which species. The law, the law just says whoever presses that button, the image belongs to them. Um, and I, I think that case was actually very important. And what we've seen is in law schools across the world, um, is students studying this case as a way to further this idea of who's who is deserving of rights? And I, I think over the years, we've seen that change massively. There was a time in human history, not very long ago, when women um, weren't allowed to own property, uh, where children didn't have rights. Well, the law has evolved. And our challenge now is to um, encourage that evolution so that the law also goes further to protect animals. And that's really what that case was about, about recognizing um, that perhaps animals are also deserving of ownership of certain things, um, that they are also, um, that they also deserve rights, the rights to be respected, the right um, to own their own habitats. Um, and I think the outcome of that case was a really positive one. We reached a, um, a settlement with the photographer um, who also recognized that the case did propel the conversation about animal rights further. And I think that was our ultimate goal. I think it's a tough one to wrap your head around, perhaps as a lay person as I am. Um, but I, I think it's force people to consider um, what animal rights means and, and to and it's furthered the conversation about where our legal system has to go in terms of animal granting animals protection and granting animals rights. We are all the same in all the ways that matter. It doesn't matter what we look like, how old we are, what language we speak, or who we love. It doesn't matter if we have fur, or feathers, or fins, the length of our nose, or the number of legs. We're not different in any important way. We all have thoughts and feelings. We all feel love and pain and loneliness and joy. We can all understand, but we are not always understanding. We experience ourselves as separate from the rest, but none of us deserves to be treated with less respect. 
Our task must be to break free from prejudice and to see ourselves in everyone else. We talked about Joaquin Phoenix just earlier and the wonderful work you're doing with directors and filmmakers. How important do you think art and specifically film is for creating shortcuts to emotional awareness and extending stories about animal rights that need to be told? I I think film is such a powerful tool. You know, that adage goes, a picture's worth a thousand words. I think film is worth a billion words. Um, I, I mentioned earlier about the impact that uh, videos and film on social media have had to PETA in terms of showing people what happens behind closed doors uh, in slaughterhouses and laboratories. Uh, but, but I think there's also wonderful feature films and documentaries now available on, on Netflix. Um, take Blackfish, for example. I don't know if you've seen that one. Um, it's a fantastic documentary um, detailing the plight of orcas at SeaWorld. Um, I think everyone who has, it's available on Netflix and elsewhere, and I think everyone who has seen that film, it's really struck a nerve and it's really motivated people to join PETA and other animal groups to get orcas other dolphins out of SeaWorld, out of captivity. Uh, It's really furthered that conversation about um, how, how, quite frankly, disgusting um, captivity of those animals looks. And I really do think that in the not too distant future, we are going to look at our treatment of these animals with shame. And I think that documentary really for the SeaWorld campaign, for the campaign to get animals out of marine parks, that documentary has has been a real pivotal moment, has been a real game changer. Um, and actually, speaking of game changers, that's another great documentary on Netflix. Um, I think Lewis Hamilton co-produced it. Um, it is a documentary about the rise of vegan athletes, about athletes like Lewis Hamilton and so many others who are really thriving on a vegan diet. Uh, and again, I, I think it's important because not only for the message, but just because of how accessible these films now are, that they're on these mainstream platforms like Netflix, um, where millions upon millions of people can can watch them, and they are changing hearts and minds. Do you have any thoughts on the infamous Tiger King as a TV show and the conversations that the show forced people to have about animal rights? What are your thoughts on Tiger King? Tiger King, it seems, you know, it seems like a lifetime ago now, but it really wasn't. Um, you're, you're right. Um, the tens of millions of people watched Tiger King at the start of lockdown. And uh, PETA was actually a part of that. Um, PETA U.S.'s lawyer um, was in the film. She played a real pivotal role in getting um, Joe Exotic behind bars and getting some of the tigers 
uh, that he was holding captive, moving them to reputable sanctuaries. I think Tiger King um, wasn't the movie that PETA would have made, but I do think it has started a conversation about um, big cats in captivity. It has made people more aware of this um, big cat petting in the cub petting industry that's um, as was documented in Tiger King, uh, where baby cubs are born into this industry. They're removed from their mothers sometimes when they're only a few hours old um, so that people can pet them and take Instagram selfies with them. Um, and of course, when these animals get, these are, they're big animals and they're predators when they get too big, um, they are either killed in cruel, crude ways or they're shipped off to another shoddy zoo, um, or they're forced to breed more cubs who enter into the same cycle of abuse. Um, and so again, it, not the show that we would have produced, but I, I do think on the whole, it got people interested in this industry and learning more about it. Um, we we had we saw a huge surge in visitors to our website um, who who wanted to learn more, um, who wanted to get the full story, and also who wanted to see photos of um, those animals. Some of those animals who are now thriving at sanctuaries where they finally can have some semblance of a life. Um, of the life that was denied to them for a long time. What about Carol Baskin? I mean, everybody has such a love-hate relationship with Carol Baskin. What's your relationship with Carol? Have you spoken to her? Uh, I haven't personally, but I know, um, you know what I can tell you is that she runs a reputable sanctuary. And I think, especially when we talk about Tiger King, it, it is important to remember that, of course, that it was a um, a show for, it was entertainment. Yeah. And so oftentimes the way that things are cut or the way that they're edited, um, it doesn't paint a full picture and I think that's very much the case with Carol what viewers didn't see or what not everyone understood or got across was that what she is doing is running a reputable sanctuary it's um and that's a far cry uh, to the one that Joe Exotic was running and I think that was a real shame in the documentary that it really pitted them against each other when in reality Carol is um Carol is running a sanctuary that exists because people like Joe Exotic are exploiting animals for profit. And that's why sanctuaries exist in the first place, because they have to pick up the pieces. Um, and and um, from, from people like Joe Exotic and other exhibitors who are, um, who are just using animals for money. For, for financial gain, and that, that's all. It's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. There are more captive tigers in the U.S. than there are in the wild throughout the world. Animal people are nuts, man. They're all crazy. 
I'm sure y'all got a story to tell. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Joe Exotic, and this is Sarge. He was like a mythical character living out in the middle of bumfuck Oklahoma who owned 1,200 tigers and lions and bears and shit. Come here, love me. <laughs> Matt Spoken, good looking, love to party and have fun. I don't think we're done blowing shit up today. I don't think <laughs> you are. They have a heart and a soul and a mind. I've learned from them. But Carol Baskin keeps saying, I can't have these tigers. If he ever had an enemy in his life, it was Carol Baskin. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens, it's Carol at Big Cat Rescue. Carol is the Mother Teresa of cats. We will end the private possession of these cats. This is my way of living, and nobody's going to tell me any otherwise. Carol has an army of people working for free. She's a plain out hypocrite. She literally does everything that I do. So Joe says, will you go to Florida and what? Kill that fucking lady. What a story. And it got way bigger. Sometimes they say that I'm the prototype for Scarface. We're supposed to be sexy and we're luring people in. You may now kiss the grooms. You're gonna have to kill me to shut me up. This is my first album, I Saw Tiger. There's 28 songs and 16 music videos. I saw Tiger, now I understand. I saw Tiger, Tiger saw me. What about the future for yourselves? What are you working on right now? What's going on with Peter looking forward? Oh, so much. Um... You know, I, I think for us, so long as animals are killed for a moment of taste, for fashion accessory, for a tube of lipstick, we're, we'll keep fighting. Um, we will keep spreading the message that they're not ours to experiment on, to eat, to wear, to use for entertainment or to abuse in any other way. Um, and we will continue to challenge people to examine their relationship with animals. I mentioned that at the top of the interview, but I think it's worth repeating that we have to shift that relationship from one of dominance to one of respect. Elisa Allen, thank you for joining us on Fly Fidelity. You've been very generous with your time. Thanks, Luke. It was great to be here and great to chat about all things PETA and animal rights. God, I'm full of so much gratitude right now. Uh, and I do not feel elevated above any of my fellow nominees or anyone in this room because we share the, the same love, the, the love of film. And this form of expression has given me the most extraordinary life. Um, I don't know what I'd be without it. But I think the greatest gift that it's given me and many of us in this room is the opportunity to use our voice for the voiceless. I think that we've become very disconnected from the natural world, and many of us, what we're guilty of is an egocentric worldview, the belief that we're the center of the universe. We go into the natural world and we plunder it for its resources. We feel entitled to artificially inseminate a cow, and when she gives birth, we steal her baby even though her cries of anguish are unmistakable. And then we take her milk that's intended for her calf and we put it in our coffee 
and our cereal. And I think we fear the idea of personal change because we think that we have to sacrifice something to give something up. But human beings at our best are so inventive and creative and ingenious. And I think that when we use love and compassion as our guiding principles, we can create, develop, and implement systems of change that are beneficial to all sentient beings and to the environment. When, when we support each other, not when we cancel each other out for past mistakes, but when we help each other to grow, when we educate each other, when we guide each other towards redemption. That is the best of humanity.